One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. Welcome to News Hour Extra. This is Owen Bennett-Jones. And this week, we're in the great state of Texas, Austin, University of the great state of Texas. And with me now, Piers Lynch, producer of the programme. And we're talking sport. Why are we doing that? Uh, well, you know, as you can probably hear from my voice, I have a slightly confused accent. So uh, my parents are American. I've always had a great love uh, of American sport. And uh, so on this whirlwind tour of America, I was desperate to uh, yeah, look at you know, some of the dynamic things that are happening in between uh, activism and sport, really. Well, one of the fascinating things reading about this in advance of the programme was the way sport is downplayed as a vignette, if you like, into cultural life. And, I mean, it says quite, you know, the way sport is done here and the way it's managed and what, what happens, it says quite a lot about American society. Yeah, and, I mean, in particular, the thing that you... Any casual observer watching on TV who's a fan of American football or basketball, the majority of the players are African-American and all the guys who own the teams are white. And that's just... You know, a, a good microcosm of uh, one of the great ills of American society, really, this great racial uh, disparity and tension. Yeah, and at the same time, things are happening and player activism, African-American player activism is beginning to bite. And we have this case, which we'll discuss in the programme, where you know, a very sort of highly paid, big shot university president had to resign in the face of player activism. So anyway, lots to talk about. Stay tuned for one hour on American sport and empowerment. BBC World Service, welcome to News Hour Extra with Owen Bennett-Jones. And this week we're in Austin, Texas, discussing sport and power and culture and race. And we're in a great place to do it. It's the University of Texas where the sports department is highly profitable, generates revenues of around $180 million a year. That's the university sports department. And in the next few years, the sports market in the United States is projected to generate over $74 billion annually. That's across the whole country. And today we're going to be asking who gets that money, how much uh, you get, does that depend on your race, on your gender, does power come with that money? And to discuss these issues, I'm joined by Darren Roberts, former NFL, so that's National Football League coach and founder of the Centre for Sports Leadership and Innovation at the University of Texas. We've got Jessica Luther, an independent journalist and author whose work deals with the crossover of sport and culture. We've got Ben Carrington, University of Texas sociology professor, author of Race, Sport and Politics, and Lance Blanks, an NBA player, so that's the National Basketball Association, and general manager who ran a basketball team, the Phoenix Suns, for many years. And I think just, first of all, for our international audience, people just need to understand a bit about the sport and how it works here in the United States and how big it is. So could, perhaps you could start... Lance Blanks, and we're really going to be concentrating in this discussion on football and basketball. How big are they? They're enormous, or they've gotten enormous. And uh, I think you, you have to start with the idea that these sports are entertainment. Uh, they're not necessarily going after customers with a widget or something that they make. They make entertainment. So you're competing with these big companies like Disney who offers entertainment, you're competing with a lot of different people for revenue. But with the explosion of the Internet, social media, telephones, the ability to communicate around the world in a moment's time, sports have exploded also in conjunction with those vehicles. And it's getting bigger and bigger. It's more and more money. 
huge money. I mean, let's take, for example, uh, the NCAA March Madness, the tournament that just ended. NCAA? Yeah, National College Athletic Association, uh, which is the, the governing body. And, and so just to, just to finally get that, how much money would college-level basketball generate? In the multi-billions, but let me put it in context for you. They generate, just for that tournament, roughly about $700 million for the rights to show those games over the course of the month of March. And if you put it in the aggregate in terms of the conferences money that's generated through the season, uh, the regular season, that number gets huge quickly. Okay, so let's bring in Professor Ben Carrington. And I, I, I've come to you on this early stage as well because you are from the UK. So I presume when you arrived here 12 years ago, you were as astonished by the sports system as most non-Americans would be. So can you just tell us what, what, what shocked you when you came from the UK to the University of Texas and saw what happens here? It's hard for a UK audience, and I think anyone outside of the US, to truly comprehend the size and the scale of, of collegiate sports here in the US. I went to Loughborough University in the UK, which is considered to be one of the main sports universities, you know, probably as close as you'll get in the UK to what we have over here in, in the US. And we had top athletes, Paula Radcliffe, the marathon runner, the long-distance runner. She was in my, my cohort. When I came for my job interview here, I thought I had walked onto a sports franchise campus that also did some teaching on the side. The football stadium, so the American football stadium, holds 100,000. They have a separate baseball stadium, a separate softball stadium. There's a separate soccer stadium. There's a water complex. Now, these are things which don't just simply don't exist to that scale in, in, in the UK, and actually most of the rest of the world. So the, the physical scale and the monetary scale, and also therefore the, the kind of the economic and political scale of college sports is, is unlike anything you, you see elsewhere. And Jessica Luther, the players who are generating this enormous amount of money are not getting paid. They get, they get a scholarship mm-hmm. to go to university for four years, right? But they don't walk away with any cash. Right, and then the argument is that they are, quote-unquote, paid by the education that they're getting, which is also a very complicated thing itself because the graduation rate is, is rather low. Like, a lot of these people are not actually completing degrees and getting the education that's supposed to be the payment for generating millions and billions of dollars for these universities. So, but yeah, basically they get a scholarship, they get a, a degree if they go all the way through, and that's their payment. Right, and now the politics comes into it when you look at the racial aspect of this. So tell us about African-Americans in these college games, how the percentages work out, who's playing at that level. Why don't you do that, Darren Roberts? So if you look at the two major sports, and we were having this discussion, the, the two sports that are the profitable sports on a college campus are men's football, men's basketball. So at most, if not all institutions, those two sports float the rest of the athletics department. In both of those sports, African-Americans are overrepresented in terms of their numbers in the general population. So just take the University of Texas, the African-American population is roughly 5%. It vacillates from 4 to 5%. But of the sports playing population? Yes, yes, but then you get to the sports. So all you have to do is if you turn on the TV on a Saturday and watch uh, the UT football game, the overwhelming majority of the players will be African-American. And I think those numbers are somewhere around 65% for the University of Texas. And that's common across the league. So you have this racial dimension, which is sort of interesting in that 
most of the money generated, that $180 million worth of revenue for the University of Texas is being generated by African-American athletes. And, and you have a lot of different arguments at the table. Some people will say, well, these scholarships are providing opportunities for athletes who may not have had an opportunity to go to a Division One institution or a Tier 1 research institution. Some will say... I think you've seen this from the Northwestern movement for unionization and the cost of attendance movement for payment to players that college athletes need to receive more in the way of compensation for what they're generating for the university. Right. And could someone else help me? Does anyone come in on this? Uh, you've, you've described the players at this university, and it's probably quite typical, 65% African-American. And then in the university athletics department, at the coaching level and the, the sort of managerial level, if you like, it won't be like that at all. You know, it's very white. So like the NCAA itself, the administration of the NCAA is, is very white. UT is an exception here with the head Coaches of our basketball and football teams are both black men, but um, across the country, that is a, most of the time it's white coaches that are making so much money coaching these teams at the same time that they're saying they can't pay players. Um, so the, the salary for a top coach? The low end at what's uh, called a Power Five conference, which are the top five conferences in the country. At the low end, you're not going to find a coach making less than a million up to seven to eight million dollars a year, depending on the coach and the school and the situation. Also, just want to add because you asked about those numbers, uh, experts estimate it's somewhere between 10 and 12 billion dollars are generated between football and basketball amongst all the NCAA schools. Okay, and just to explain, and perhaps you could do this, Ben Carrington, the, the, the sort of reason that the players go through this unpaid service, if you like, in which they generate millions of dollars for universities and for the coaches, is the hope that they make it. So just talk us through how that works. So, so there are two arguments. One is, that, as Jessica's just pointed out, is that there, there is a value to the degree, the, the scholarship that they get, though, although it's worth pointing out that until last year, they only had one-year scholarships. So in other words, a student commits to a university to play for a number of years to get a degree, but the universities themselves only committed to one-year scholarships, which were renewable at the discretion of the head coach. So you can see the, the huge power uh, imbalance that, that, that produced. So that, that has changed against the wishes of the NC, many in the NCAA and against many athletics directors. And we should also point out it's not just college coaches that are on huge salaries, that the head coaches, it's also the athletics directors, who themselves are overwhelmingly white and overwhelmingly male. So that's part of the kind of the racial equity that we see here. But the promise is that you're going to get your degree, and they valued it around... Uh, Steve Patterson was the former athletics director here at UT, and he came up with a figure of around $60,000. Um, that, that was the, the worth of the degree once you factored in everything. And as he pointed out, that's more than the average income of most Americans. So actually, from his point of view, it was worth pointing out that he was paid a salary of $1.2 million as the athletics director. That was his base salary, more than the actual president of the University of Texas. So his argument was, well, look, they, they are getting something in return. They're getting this degree that's worth $60,000. Well, it's worth looking at where that figure comes from. So they include in that figure all of the travel costs that the athletes go on. So according to those same figures, the basketball players, the, the worth of the degree for the basketball players was over 100000 because they fly so often. So let, let's just be quite clear here. The athletics director's remuneration does not include their travel. If it did at the end of the year, they would be very upset at the notion that, well, you travelled a lot for UT, therefore we're going to take that out of your paycheck. So even these figures that they come up with, I think are bogus figures, and it's, it's worth pointing that out. But then the golden egg, if you like, is the possibility to get a professional contract. So in the NBA and NFL. But, but so few players make it. Well, I was going to ask you that. What percentage 
percentage go from this college-level sport to big-time and professional sport? can be as high as 3%, often it's around 2%, and often it can be as low as 1%. Yeah. And even then, that's when we say they've made it. When you actually look at the figures as to what happens down the line... Many of these players, even if they have made it, don't have a career longer than three years. And many of them, it's around 40%, I think, go bankrupt once they finish their career. Right, but but it is also, we we must make this clear, that if they are part of that 1% or 3%, whatever the number is each each year, they do make enormous money from the moment they start being professional. Well, not necessarily. And so that's where it gets tricky. So if you're a high school football player, you have a 0.08% to reach an NFL roster. Then you have an average of 3.3 years in the league, it's been stated, and the minimum salary is 450k. And what most people don't realize is they see the Tom Brady's, the quarterback for the England Patriots, where they see um, the Peyton Mannings, who just recently retired, and they think, oh, multi-year, uh, $20 million contracts. No, the majority of the players in the NFL are making $450,000. They're special teams players. They're not your marquee Athletes. Yeah, I'd also add the, the numbers that we work off in NBA. This is Lance Blanks. Yeah, it's less than one percent. I mean, if you take a hundred people potentially that have an opportunity to play in the NBA, and one makes it, that's one percent. But if you take thousands, so do the math. If you get out of high school, you can just get into college, and you go 352 Division One schools, time 12. Do the math. Players on that team, you're only going to draft 60 and less than half are going to make a career out of it. Okay. now, one of the reasons we're talking about this today is that things are changing a bit, and uh, perhaps you can talk us through this, Jessica Luther, because we've portrayed so far, you know, quite accurately, a picture of college-level players, you know, not getting much out of this, uh, given the amount of money they're generating. However, there was something happening in the University of Missouri last year which showed that these players can assert themselves and start making political points and getting political decisions go their way. Tell us what happened at that university. This past year at the University of Missouri, there were a lot of student activists who were protesting uh, racist incidents that had happened on campus, and they were saying that the administration of Missouri was not doing enough to respond to what they felt was a racist um, atmosphere and being uncomfortable on campus. And there were they ended up pairing up with the football team, like as Darren said, which has an overwhelming number of black football players. And the football team said that they were going to boycott participating in football until the president of the university was fired. He was fired, or maybe he resigned. I mean, within days of, of this announcement. It was a moment where we could all see the the power, right? They have power, and we all recognize that that power comes from the fact that they generate so much money. Like, the idea, I think they were supposed to play BYU that weekend. If they didn't play BYU, the school was going to lose something like a million dollars. So right off the bat, they were about to have a massive financial hit, right? So we got to see this collective moment where these students, which was incredibly risky on their part. Because they might have lost their scholarships. Sure, they might have lost their scholarship. You know, for the tiny bit that are going to make it to the NFL, to the National Football League, like, that's the only avenue, right? So you're really risking Risking everything, risking your whole career. But so, Darren Roberts, what I hadn't realized before reading before in preparation for this program was there have been quite a few similar protests in previous years, going back to, you know, 1969, uh, and players have been trying to do this sort of thing, and they always lost, Right. And this time they won. You know, the economics changed. And so I so I have this I teach a leadership strategy in sports class and I have a clause in it that states that, you know, I reserve the right to suspend the syllabus at any time 
for current events. And the Missouri situation is one in which I said, hey, for two days, we're going to talk about the dynamics of Missouri. And what was really fascinating to me was that the head coach at Missouri, the head football coach who made roughly $4 million, he appears with portion of his football team in a tweet that says that he stands behind this. That's on a Saturday. Within 48 hours, the president and the chancellor of the Missouri system were gone. So you're saying the top coach was actually more powerful than the university president? Well, I I, I posed a question to my class. I said, let's imagine that tweet without Gary Pinkle. I don't think we would have seen such a frenetic pace to oust the top two administrators from that system. It will be interesting to see if athletes at other institutions take the Missouri case and say, ah, you know, we have some some economic leverage that we can assert. The interesting thing you're saying is you're not sure if the players had done it on their own without the coach backing them, because the coach took a big decision. He backed his players. And if he'd not done that, you're not sure it would have happened. So I'm going to tell you this. I I think it depends. It's a case-by-case basis. If the players are good on a good team, and you're starting quarterback and running back and free safety, say, we're not playing, then I think you'll see some changes made quickly. But I'm not sure that those players are willing to take that gamble. Let let me open this up and just say, how important did you think, the panel think, this University of Missouri series of events was in terms of empowering African-American college-level players? I think it was extremely important. It's been the case for years. I mean, we can go back to the 60s when Muhammad Ali stood up to going to, to fight in Vietnam and just seeing that courage and being an example for others, I think it's powerful. I think the other lesson that's important to learn is you need other people to help you and do that. We're here at the University of Texas and Martin Luther King is famous for the Civil Rights Act, but so is LBJ. They needed one another to get that movement uh, and and help it to come to fruition. So I think having that example, though, is is one of the keys for for athletes around the world so that we can be a progressive society. And that was Lance Blanks. Ben Carrington, you want to say something? When those athletes recognize themselves as belonging to a broader collective, not just as individual athletes, at that moment they have a degree of power which they don't necessarily have as individuals. And I think that was why it posed such a big threat to Missouri and why the president stepped down. We have to recognize that, I would argue, that essentially capitalism exploits labor. And the sports system is part of a hyper-commercialized capitalistic system. And once those people who have been exploited recognize that phenomenon or that fact, that truth, and they begin to collectively organize, then they can begin to push a whole range of other things beyond the salary. And at the moment, that doesn't exist. And I think that that was the biggest threat that the athletics directors understood straight away. We've talked about the situation in Missouri, where the players were basically complaining about a racist atmosphere on campus that they didn't feel the administration was doing enough about. There have been other examples of activism by players, some at the professional level, not the college level, with players going on the pitch, putting their hands above their heads in a sort of don't shoot me pose, which really upset the police. And there have been other cases too. I want to ask you this. When players do this sort of thing, does it win over the fans? I mean, it sounds like the fans' loyalty to the team is being tested in a way. So do the players expect that their political activism to win over a broader support base amongst the, the fans of the clubs? So I have, I have a couple of thoughts on this. Um, the St. Louis Rams, uh, National Football League, uh, four players decided during the pregame ceremonies to raise their hands in protest to the, what happened in Ferguson. Um, when the I police actually, shot someone dead. Yes, correct. You know, you look at that incident, you look at the Los Angeles Clippers incident where Donald Sterling, the owner, um, is recorded making very racist remarks. 
This is going into game four of the playoffs versus the Golden State Warriors. The Clippers meet as a team, and they decide that their sign of protest will be to wear the Clippers' warm-up jerseys inside out during the pregame. But once tip-off goes up, then the jerseys are you know, worn regularly. And I, I posed this question to my class. I said, imagine Jim Brown, famous running back, uh, noted as one of the, the best football players in the history of the National Football League, um, and then Bill Russell, famous basketball player, won 10 championships. You know, Lance mentioned, mentioned Muhammad Ali. I would be hard-pressed to think that those games would have been played had that generation of athletes been in that position. So had Bill Russell been in the position of Chris Paul, who's a point guard for the Clippers, would they have just turned the jerseys inside out during pregame? Would they have thought that was an act that would really kind of change the conversation? Or would they have said, we're not playing this game? I see. So you think the players actually were reining themselves in more than you might expect? The game went on, right? I mean, This is Ben Carrington. So Donald Sterling in a very short space of time, was eventually suspended by the NBA. Uh, He was fined, I think, $2.5 million. And importantly, he was banned for life from any involvement with the NBA and stripped of ownership. Now, that came about, I think, actually, because there was concerns that the players were going to not play. So there was a discussion amongst some of the senior players like LeBron James, one of the best basketball players and others, and they were threatening to withdraw their labour. So I think the tipping point wasn't just turning the jerseys inside out, but that didn't get rid of Donald Sterling. When the the number of the senior players made it clear to the NBA commissioner that this is not acceptable, and at that moment all the other owners turned on Sterling, and he was gone in in a really short period of time. But my question is, none of you have answered, so I'm going to just try once again and just say, do you think that when you get African-American players making these protests about issues that they're concerned about, does that sway opinion amongst white fans for those clubs? Does it make a difference to American society in that way? It puts light on the issue. Trayvon Martin, the issue in Florida, the heat, the players wore hoodies. Mm -hmm. And so it it wasn't so much about, oh, now I'm a fan of Dwayne Wade or LeBron James. Why are they doing that? Oh, well, they're doing that because of Trayvon Martin. Well, who is that? Oh, wow. Okay, so now you have light in a place where there might have been darkness in society in terms of information. And the other thing that, if I can speak to Ben's point and Darren's point about the the protests, uh, my dad uh, was an NFL football player. If I can give him a shout-out, he was the first black scholarship football in the state of Texas. And so he had a lot that he experienced and went through in this state. And I think that generation of players, you know, we talk about Muhammad Ali, talk about Jim Brown, Russell, and some of those guys, how they grew up as children and what they experienced planted the seed in them to be able to have the fortitude, uh, the ideology, the experience to potentially not play in order to invoke more change versus kids who might have grown up in the late 80s, early 90s through now. Take more for granted? Just haven't had the breadth of experience, if you you will. And certainly, yes. To Lance's point, I think players now earn more. I would think that with that economic independence, you would see more courage on the political front. You Actually, I think it's going to reverse. They have the economic leverage to really exert power and change the actions of 
commissioners and owners, but they're not doing it. Just to make that clear, you're talking now about the professional level where they're earning really big money, are perhaps not doing as much as you might might think they would. Let's be quite clear. Large sections of the white fan base criticise the players heavily. And the notion was shut up and play. And that's been a refrain from white fans since the days of Jack Johnson, the first black heavyweight champion, through to the 1930s and the 1950s and 1960s. Whenever black athletes have taken a stand, large sections of the white fan base have said, we're paying your salary. It isn't your place to engage in politics. Shut up and play. Now, the difference was there was a broader Black Lives Matter movement. And that gave, I think, a number of those players that Devon talked about a degree of kind of courage that they, they could make a stand. The head of the police federation in St. Louis came out against the players, who actually had not insignificant numbers of, of white fans and, and, and other uh, members of the broader white community who did not like the, these protests, to remember that. Thank you very much. And we're in the University of Texas, and we have Darren Roberts of the University of Texas, Jessica Luther, independent journalist, Ben Carrington, sociology professor here and an expert on race and culture, and Lance Blanks, NBA player, general manager, analyst. Now, I wanted to ask about corporate activism because there's been an issue about transgender rights in North Carolina. And I was surprised to see that the NBA, National Basketball Association, said that the state of North Carolina would have to change this policy. It's all about whether transgender people can use the restrooms, the toilets that they want to use, or whether they have to use the one according to their birth certificate. North Carolina has a conservative ruling on this, and the NBA said they will not stand for this type of intolerance and hate. So, Jessica Luther, why are sporting bodies taking very liberal positions on these sort of issues? Well, I actually wasn't surprised when I heard that the NBA was doing this. Of all the professional leagues, they tend to be the most progressive in lots of ways that are really interesting. So they just had a video that they made, an anti-gun video that starred a lot of the NBA stars that was backed by the league. I think that came out in December. Our local team in San Antonio, the Spurs, there was an anti-LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender movement down there, and they came out in favor of LGBT rights. And so for me, that was expected them to, and I was happy to see. I mean, it took them a while. I will say they were not the first corporation to make this stand. There were lots of others. So they, I don't know if they were waiting to see where that tide was going to go. So the NBA is um, actually in a string of corporations. So Lance Blanks. To piggyback her point, the NBA is a little unique relative to other organizations in that in this example, North Carolina was a partner in a showcase event that being the NBA All-Star Game. And so the product, what you're selling beyond entertainment, is inclusion. Come one, come all. And so if your partner is potentially not taking a position or stand here, but if your partner is potentially telling a group that you can't come or you can't do this or taking away rights, then what does that say about the NBA? Gun control? I mean, that's, that's not a matter of inclusion, is it? It's, just a, it's, a, it's a very interesting political position for a sporting body to take. The NBA being progressive, it's had its share of issues with players with guns and deaths and, and shootings. And so I think it's just being on the cutting edge, using your fan weight, if you will, to influence the populace to do what what you believe as an organization is right. But Ben Carrington, would you see the management of these sporting bodies being almost ahead of the fan base on some of these issues? Sports organizations 
from FIFA to the NBA to the NFL, they make these broad kind of human rights claims about the, the, the moral standing of their sport. So, so these sports don't just say it's great to play basketball, it's great to play soccer, or you know, it's great to play football. They then go further and say that one of the reasons why sport is so important is because it can make our lives better. So once you begin to make those types of broad claims, you are then beholden to groups who will say, hold up, you've made these claims about the sport being inclusive, you've made these claims about your sport reaching out to kind of all members of, of community and society, and yet there are these discriminatory laws in places where you are working or where you're operating. And so it's, it's actually been an interesting kind of way in which activist groups have managed to use the, the rhetoric of these own sports organisations against themselves to say, if you really do believe that the NBA is inclusive to all and we, we don't tolerate racism, how can you have a general manager or an owner, actually, an owner who espouses racist views? And at that point, you either have to say, that's just PR buff and it doesn't really matter, or you have to act on it. So I think there's a, an interesting way in which these big corporations have been kind of hoisted by their own petard. Caught in their own rhetoric, Darren Roberts? Yeah, so I, I do believe that the leagues understand there is this convening power of sport and it makes sense for the narrative that the major leagues are trying to write to seem inclusive. I also think that they understand that they're somewhat insulated from an economic standpoint from taking positions. So you look at the NFL. You take the Ray Rice, former running back with the Baltimore Ravens, videotapes released where he punches his then fiance at the time in an elevator. There was a large discussion around sexual assault During that entire season, viewership didn't dip once for NFL games. Uh, Revenue didn't dip at all. In fact, it was on the steady increase. And this is at a time where it was probably the league was receiving as much criticism as it has at any other point. So they're somewhat insulated. I don't think there are risky positions for the leagues to take on these issues. Jessica Luther, I suspect you agree with that, because you've studied a lot about these sexual assault cases, haven't you? And you're not terribly impressed with the way they've been dealt with. (laughs) Not terribly impressed as a understatement. Yeah, I think I totally agree with what Darren just said. I mean, watching what's happened with the NFL in particular around, I think at some point we had the Ray Rice incident, and then that fall, there was something like five different players who had committed domestic violence, DV that everyone was paying attention to. And so the idea of like that the NFL cares about the communities, I mean, this is a big one for me. Go to any page for any team and it has its communities page where it shows what it's doing for the community. And then they're bringing in players who could potentially do violence inside of that community based on what we know about their past. And then, then at the same time, there's a lot of anger around that. We see the anger, we hear it, but people still watch and it doesn't seem to matter and they're going to keep signing the players as long as the players are good on the field and to their teammates. Can I just move this on before we open it up to questions onto one other issue which is at the professional level some of the money the players are making is now so enormous that there is a question as to whether African-American sportsmen could start becoming owners and whether that would change the nature of sports administration and the way sport is managed here in the United States. Does any of you think that's a likelihood? Ben Carrington. So the the short answer to your question, Owen, is no. There are some individual players who are rich, but they're not wealthy. And so this is one of the key things that's important to recognise. And I think this gets back maybe to one of the central questions that's been kind of animating our discussion here that perhaps we haven't really kind of discussed, and that's that's the question of power. Like, how are we defining power? How are we conceptualising power? Now, the problem is we tend to define power in relation to visibility and celebrity, but the bodies that really have the power are the NCAA. The bodies that really have the power are the NFL. The bodies that have the power are the NBA. 
The person that writes the check for LeBron James is the person in power. A good example of this, a couple of years ago, Sports Illustrated did a special issue called The Power Issue, and they ranked the top 50 most powerful people in sports. Number one was Roger Goodell, commissioner of the NFL. Number two was, uh, was uh, David Stern, who was running the NBA. Barack Obama only came in at 44, and Michael Jordan was, was on that list. So a former player made it. So you have to be the best athlete in your sport of all time even to make it into the top 40s and I'm pretty sure Roger Goodell was probably never hit a three-pointer in his life but that doesn't matter because that was an interesting indication as to where real power lies within sports I think we have to kind of recognize that yeah and Ben not to fully push back it's a good question though because there's a little bit of unknown here because we're getting into unprecedented territory and the reason we are is because right now the currency to really make money in television is live tv Because with the smartphones and whatnot, you can watch shows all day long, but sporting events are live, and so that has pushed up the salary caps for these teams. So, for example, the NBA is going to be a $90 million, roughly, cap next year. So the best players will make 25 to 30 plus or minus percent of that cap. If you can do that, and it's supposed to escalate into over $100 million, couple that with... $200 million contracts like the one that uh, Harden got uh, at the Houston Rockets basketball team. And if he can do that over three or four years, now you're talking about guys being able to generate into the billions over the course of a 12 to 15 year career. What a lot of money. Uh, Darren Roberts, I can see you nodding through various points. I'm not sure that I really care. I I mean, I, I would like to see, this is to Ben's point, I would like to see players leave their playing careers with the wealth that will allow them to build small businesses in their communities. I I think this ability to impact one's home with this newfound wealth, that to me is more important than trying to chase this, this very lofty goal of becoming an owner. I'm not saying that they shouldn't, but there really are probably five African American athletes across all of the three major sports who would even be in contention to pull the money. The money's so huge. Yes, yes. I mean, this is this is a this is not LeBron money. This is not Kobe money. You know, this is um, these are factors of ten from even their wealth now. So okay, so so let's just get some questions now. There's one here. It seems to me that there's a bit of a conflict of interest between the universities and perhaps the professional leagues in teaching athletes about financial literacy and understanding that with this opportunity to make money or bring revenue to an organization, you have more power than you think that you do. And wouldn't teaching them that perhaps be detrimental by enlightening them about the power that they have? Darren Roberts. Get right to it. Nice. So some think there is a bit of collusion between the professional leagues and colleges. I, I don't think they're that sophisticated to do it, actually. But I do think that there's sort of this gap, right? So if you're a university, unless you really care about the welfare of the students, you know, once they leave your university, you're thinking about the next recruiting class and you have to fill the next schedule's worth of seats. So I'm not sure that a lot of athletic institutions and universities care about the long-term financial stability of their student-athletes. And I think from a professional sense, so here at the University of Texas, we just began teaching financial literacy classes to all of our freshman athletes. 
this is not common across the university landscape. I hope that that gets better with the cost of attendance checks that are being paid, but I'm not confident. Lance Blanks. Yeah, I think pro sports kind of got thrown under the bus maybe and lost in the shuffle with this, with college. And what I mean by that is athletes are paid pretty well. There is a pool of money that comes into a bucket, all the revenue from TV, gate receipts, licensing, merchandising, and the like. And that money is split roughly about 50-51% goes to the players. The other half goes to the owners running the business, et cetera. I'm walking a slippery slope if I pull a player to the side and start talking to him about how to manage his millions of dollars. He's got mom, he's got dad, he's got cousin, uncle, agent, et cetera. And if I start giving advice, is that potentially a conflict of interest? The athlete is paid well. Resources are put there in terms of player development. Sometimes you can't undo a lot of damage, for lack of a better word, that's been done before the NBA or NFL or other professional sport gets the athlete. Do you accept that, Darren Roberts, is, you know, that there are difficulties in getting this kind of education across? I think it's such a small price to pay, really. I think it, it, when you look at we talk about that $180 million in revenue from the University of Texas. You're looking at, again, the Cowboys with a $4 billion franchise valuation. I think we could do more, and it wouldn't be uh, cost prohibitive by the teams. And if, if I'm being cynical, if I'm the university, I think, wouldn't it be in our best interest to produce athletes who are more financially stable such that our name won't appear in the 30 for 30 story that will come out in 2020, the sequel, right? I mean, just when from the player, a, When the players lost all the money. Right, right, right. Just from a PR others. perspective. Okay. There's a question at the back. I'm curious, the NBA and the NFL, with their aligning themselves with LGBTQ activism, is there any discussion about gender equality or maybe paying cheerleaders at all or the relationship to women in these massive sporting arenas? Uh, no. Um, I mean, they're getting sued all over the place by cheerleaders, right? So they're being forced legally to deal with that issue, which is that in, uh, NFL teams in particular don't pay their cheerleaders, like almost nothing. I mean, one of the things that I say all the time is that if teams are going to get better about things like sexism and homophobia and transphobia and these things that we see pop up in sport all the time, uh, they need to hire more women. I'm also incredibly cynical about that. Question there. Football especially, but all sports, are dangerous. And, well, we've heard a lot about big money. We've heard a lot about race. But the statistic that hit home to me was the one about the percentage of high school athletes that make it into the NFL, what is it, 0.08? I'm surprised it's that high. And that the longevity of a player is maybe three years. So you got a short window in there to make some big money. You're lucky if you can go eight or ten without getting seriously injury. Now, this has been recently brought to the fore in a major movie, Concussion, which I'm surprised didn't get one Academy Award nomination. Okay, so your question is really, basically, is enough being done about this health issue, particularly in in football? and they are passing some rules now about it, but these players are getting bigger and stronger and they're hitting harder, and and even in basketball, I'm sure players are very injury-prone, very vulnerable. Ben Carrington. 
It's a good question because you actually touch on one of the big myths about professional sports. Being an elite athlete is not good for your health. Ironically, one of the best things you can do as an elite athlete is, that, is to only have a two- to three-year career. And we tend to focus on football, American football, because of the big hits and the concussion across the board. If you look what elite athletes have to do, whether or not you're a tennis player, you're a golfer, you're a lacrosse player, you're a soccer player, regardless, you have to push your body to the limits. And then a whole load of sports scientists come along and say, we're going to push your body even further. And then a whole load of technology companies come along and say, well, we're going to take biometric measurements, we're going to push your body even further to the point where we can work out what's the point at which you break your body Body, we're going to stop just short of that to maximise what we can get out of you for the length of your contract. Elite sports do not produce healthy bodies. As we look at these bodies in their prime in their 20s and 30s, and we very rarely see those same bodies that are broken down in their 40s, 50s and 60s. And so I actually think this is one of the big issues. I mean, the focus has been on the NFL and concussion, but I think we need a broader discussion about what it means to have a healthy body that can actually perform at this level. So I actually think there's a contradiction between the two. Lance Blanks, am I right in thinking your father's involved in, a, in this issue? Yeah, it's, it's ironic that the question's asked. I'm on the road constantly back and forth to Houston because my dad, he played roughly about eight years in the NFL, uh, probably in one of the most violent times of the NFL because you came out of the period of the leather helmets, no face masks, and then about in the mid to latter 60s, bigger, stronger, gladiator-style football, and he played arguably one of the more dangerous positions, which is running back. And the reason it's one of the most dangerous is because all 11 players at some point are trying to tackle you or have tackled you. But since he was, he's now, he'll be 75 in about a week. Uh, since he was about 55, he's uh, been suffering from Parkinson's. It's kind of weird. It's the first time I've said that publicly. And I knew the effects early on in his early 50s. I noticed that he was moving much slower. And I didn't know if it was me or him because time would pass because I was playing overseas and how often I would see him. And eventually he told me. And so what that's turned into is basically I'm his primary caregiver, memory, severe memory issues uh, with dementia, just a lot of poor decision-making. So I'm almost like his brain. And so there's a relationship with the NFL because they came up with a program when They didn't know a lot about this, but the players were having tremendous problems. There was a guy named, uh, last name Mackey, who was a tight end for the Indianapolis Colts. He and his wife went on a campaign to get money from the league to support players like my dad. And eventually they got it passed, and it's called Mackey 88. So they give them roughly $100,000 to $130,000 a year to care for the players. So Is is the link definitely there between the, the football and the illness? Well, there are about 20,000 retired players and roughly 30 to 35% from what I've read and seen have Alzheimer's, ALS, dementia, CTE, which is undiagnosable until death, or Parkinson's. So what the link does tell them is the percentages are much higher than the general population. So if you can imagine 30% of the population or 25% of the population walking around with these conditions, it's probably a safe bet that it's come from what all of that group had done. Sure. Jessica Luther, you want to say something? Yeah, I wanted to um, go back to when we were talking about what you get 
when you go to school under the NCAA, you get your scholarship, you get your education, um, you don't get health care, right? And so one of the things is like a lot of people don't end up going into the professionals, right? They, they're sacrificing their bodies in the way that Ben is talking about for these universities that aren't actually paying them. And then they're taking care of these bodies after they leave school without any money from the university that has made all this money off of them. Um, there are people now working, there are former collegiate athletes who are out there talking about um, the impacts I've heard specifically from concussions. Um, and they are pushing for universities to pay for the health care of their student athletes well beyond when they leave the university because this is a particular problem because so many of the athletes don't go on to careers in athletics, but then they pay with their bodies. For so this is changing, you think? Oh, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I think people are pushing to pushing make that change, but yeah. anything with the NCAA is cynical. So, Darren Roberts. So I'm, I'm glad that Lance shared their story because I think that that gets lost, like these personal narratives get lost around the movie premieres and the stories. And I think that we talk about the 0.08% of high school players who will reach the NFL. Well, 25% of high school athletes' parents believe that they're – son will reach the NFL. So I struggle with kids who look like me looking at the television and thinking that playing a professional sport is the only way to make a lot of money and be successful. And then getting into a sport which will invariably destroy their bodies if they're successful, right? Because if you're successful, you're doing something consistently at a long time, which means you're also by virtue destroying your body. Um, and I love the sport. I coached it. My kids, if they want to, will be able to play. But I, it's hard to reconcile a lot of young people from impoverished communities seeing this as the way out and not understanding the attendant risks that come along with it. And then once they're in the pipeline, I mean, it's tough to turn away from. Because, of course, everyone at 18 thinks they're going to live forever with no problems at all, don't they? Yeah. What I'd like to do now is just invite the panel to, to make some final, you know, a final remark each, if you like. We've been talking about you know, race and power and money and health and opportunity and so on, a lot of broad themes. So let me just give you the opportunity to have a, a sort of takeaway point, if you can, that you'd want to make. Why don't I start with you, Darren Roberts? Yeah, I think we've, we've talked about a lot of high-level areas and topics. I think what's most striking for me right now is just the influence that sport has on the young generation of people the Kobe Bryant and LeBron James, I mean, these are godlike figures in the minds of our young people. And so I think it's very important for us to be intentional and thoughtful about the way that we present these players to our young people. And also just the system itself, because at each step, you have to sort of walk this very narrow path to get to the stardom. And a lot of times the kid back in Mount Pleasant, Texas doesn't understand that. And so I think that we need to think about what are the messages that we're sending to young people through sport. Jessica Luther. When we talk about sport a lot, I mean, I'm a, I'm a journalist. Like, you're, you know, your job is to focus on these athletes and what they're doing, and, and people are very good at that. But when we talk about power, those are not the people that have it, right, in sports systems. Like, we need to continue to ask questions about, we talk about athletic directors, we talk about who runs the NCAA, who owns these teams and these leagues. I think that 
we have to continually question that and we are set up not to we are set up to focus on the athletes and to look at them and what they do and that is cool and awesome and we should keep doing that and it's good for my paycheck but at the same time we have to force ourselves to remember who's running the system um, who has the power professor ben carrington <clears throat> what she said um <laughs> the ncaa makes a big argument about the values of amateurism this is, this is the primary kind of ideological reason as to why they justify not playing these, these student athletes. But it seems to me that the NCAA took the worst part of amateurism and left the best parts of amateurism. So in other words, the part that they chose to kind of focus on was the notion that you don't play players. But amateurism, at least as it you know, developed in, in Britain in, in the 19th century, was a broader philosophy about how you play the game, about avoiding winning at all costs, about a disdain, if you like, for the kind of professionalisation of coaching, the notion that you would spend, as many student-athletes do in the US, 30, 40, even 50 hours per week training, doing videotapes, playing the games, travelling to games... Any 19th century um, kind of you know, Victorian who embraced the values of amateurism would be shot if they looked at the college sports system. So one maybe bold move would be to actually to call out the NCAA and say, yes, rather than trying to resist amateurism, we're going to say, no, we can go back to the true values of amateurism, which is about putting sport into its rightful place, not overprivileging it, and kind of having respect for your opponents and not being so obsessed with this notion of winning at all costs. I think if we began to introduce that, notion of amateurism that could be really transformative to college sports and finally to you Lance Blanks I think it's just important to point out that uh, having been one uh, as an athlete and experienced managing it and also working with a lot of athletes uh, these are people and humans and I think sight of that gets lost sometimes because of them being superstars or bigger than life and always being on TV and in front of us in the newspaper and on our smartphones. These people have families, they have challenges, and often they don't have all the information that we might because they're putting so much time into their craft, into their expertise, and to not being one that's only there for three years, which is very, very difficult because it's incredibly competitive. And so my point is just to recognize that when you're looking at these guys that are running up and down the court or on the field, that there is a huge human element to that that they're dealing with and living through. And then my final point in that is I hope, and it's to the point you may Ben and Jessica, I really hope that the NCAA gets in the room with potentially representation from the player side, from the sponsor side, from the administrative side, and comes up with a system that is in line with where sport is today. And I think the problem is enormity of the sport, the revenue of the sport, and what it is is far beyond what the rules are that they've tried to keep in place and tweak here and there over the course of the years. Hopefully that will change, which I think will be better for everyone, including those of us who are fans of the sport and the athletes. Well, it's a fascinating uh, discussion we've had. Thank you very much for it. And it is something we don't normally discuss, sport and politics and power and things. But sport is a very good uh, way of examining a lot of things that go on in society. So thank you very much to Darren Roberts, Jessica Luther, Ben Carrington and Lance Blanks. Uh, just to say, if you like this week's programme and you want to make sure you don't ever miss an edition, then the solution is to get the podcast, BBC NewsHour Extra, and then you can email us at newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk. You can tweet at BBC NH Extra. Uh, but for now, that's it at the University of Texas. So thanks very much for listening. And from Owen Bennett-Jones here in Austin, goodbye. <laughs>